So there's a show that ran for, I don't know, almost a decade and a half. Uh, you might be familiar, it's called Mythbusters. Um, their thing was to take myths and uh, prove or disprove them, typically disprove them. They disprove things like this. Um, jumping before an elevator hits the ground will save you. That's the myth. Um, and so they put a dummy in an elevator and spring-loaded him. And at exactly the right time, the dummy jumped. And uh, you can see some dummy parts laying there. He perished. Not a true thing. Okay. Another one was uh, cell phones blow up gas stations. Maybe you've seen these warning signs at gas stations not to use your cell phone. Well, they found out that the, the spark um, will not ignite the gas that's in the air, so you can use your cell phone safely at the gas pump. I'm sure it's a relief to many of you. Um, another one was people sink into quicksand. And for those of you who are Princess Bride fans, you might want to plug your ears at this point in time. Um, but it's not true. They found that, um, that actually people float in quicksand. They don't sink into quicksand. And the last one I'll share this morning, and this is sad for parents, the five-second rule um, is not true. Okay. But it, it, it sometimes is true that if it, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. So you might want to just cling to that, parents, um, that if your food touches the ground, it does absorb germs if you pick it up even within five seconds. But So those are myths. That Mythbusters looked at, along with a billion other ones over the years, where they proved that these myths were in fact myths. They weren't true. But from time to time, they would find myths that turned out to be not myths. They turned out to be true. Here are some of those. Driving while angry uses more gas. True. Um, nervousness actually does cause cold feet. The temperature of your feet goes down if you're anxious. Um, elephants really are afraid of mice, and axes are better than guns in a zombie apocalypse. So those things are all, all true. See, when a myth is proved true, it's no longer a myth. It's a truth, right? And that, in a sense, is what Peter is trying to do in our passage today. Take what some are saying is a myth and prove it to be true to the extent that we will believe that it's true, that we will rely upon it. So we're in Second Peter chapter 1, the back end of the chapter, starting in verse 16. It reads like this. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is in mythbuster mode in our passage today. He says, when we apostles taught you about the return of Jesus, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, it's not a myth. Okay? It's not even a cleverly devised myth. And the teaching that Jesus will return again is everywhere in the scriptures. Luke recorded the angel's words in Acts chapter 1. While they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Peter himself in the book of Acts would say, uh, chapter 3, Repent, therefore, turn back, 
that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians. He said, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The Old Testament prophet Daniel made this prediction in chapter 7. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. John picks up on that same imagery. He writes, as he envisions it in Revelation chapter 1, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus himself explicitly taught about his own return in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Peter is acknowledging there is a stunning accusation in spite of this mountain of scriptural teaching to the contrary. The the accusation is that the return of Christ is a myth. And he writes about it in 2 Peter, the letter we're studying, chapter 3. He says, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there were false teachers that Peter was gravely concerned about who were teaching in the church, pressing teaching into the church, that the return of Jesus was a myth. It reminds me of, uh, there was a former Soviet leader, um, Khrushchev, And after they had sent cosmonauts into space to orbit the earth, um, he would later say, because the Russian cosmonauts couldn't see God when they orbited the earth, God does not exist. So these scoffers look around, they see no evidence of Jesus coming, and so they say it must be a myth, and they mock it. The denial of the second coming of Jesus, tragically, is not merely an ancient inclination. So I grew up as a child in a church, a denomination called the United Church of Christ. Um, It was a merger of several smaller churches in the 1950s. Let's just say it was a church that wasn't renowned for uh, biblically conservative theology, right? Um, And here's their doctrinal statement on Jesus from their website. It says, in Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, our crucified and risen Savior, you have come to us and shared our common lot, conquering sin and death and reconciling the world to yourself. And uh, first reading, I like that. I think it's beautiful. That's all they say. There's something missing, right? 
that whole I'll be back thing. It's missing. Okay. There's no reference to the return of Christ. Now there's a, um, a UCC pastor, his name is Tom Sorensen uh, out in Washington State. He preached this in their churches, right? This is what he preached. He says, as you can probably tell, I don't put much stock in the second coming. As for me, I just don't believe in the second coming of Christ. At least, at the very least, I think we have to say that a second coming is entirely up to God. We can't do anything to bring it about or to prevent it. Beyond that, it hasn't happened in the last 2,000 years, so let's not worry about it. And although that way of putting it may make belief in the second coming sound innocuous, if a little silly, I'm actually convinced that belief in the second coming isn't harmless. It has significant negative consequences for Christian faith and for how Christians live in the world. This is being preached in Christian churches. That the second coming, the belief in the second coming of Jesus is a bad thing. And and that should sound vaguely familiar to you, right? He says, it hasn't happened in the last 2,000 years, so let's not worry about it. Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, the Pew Research Center um, does lots of surveys of folk, and they have found that roughly one out of five American Christians, American Christians, Christians, not just Americans in general, one out of five would agree with Pastor Tom here that the second coming of Jesus is a myth. One out of five American Christians believe this. And Peter is gravely concerned for the churches he is writing to and for us that they not give in to this faithless perspective that denies the second coming of Christ. And so now what he does, he shares a personal experience that he had, that he was eyewitness to, that bolsters his and our faith in the return of Jesus. At least, that's what it's supposed to do. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter and some others, you notice he's writing plural here, We were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus in such a way that it buttresses our faith in the second coming. And so what could that be? Is he writing about the resurrection? Um, Or or his encounters with the risen Christ where Jesus would like just walk through walls into a room when the doors were locked? Um, Is he writing about Jesus' ascension to heaven? Curiously, it's none of those things, helpful as they are. He's writing about yet another encounter that he had with Jesus' majesty. Um, Look at the next two verses. He says, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that is, God spoke to his Son, and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is describing an encounter that he and some others had with God the Father and Jesus, God's Son, on a mountain. Now, what is he talking about? 
It's something that is often called the transfiguration. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it in their biographies of Jesus, in their gospels. For instance, listen to Matthew 17. This is what Peter's talking about. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And it's like... Peter stopped talking and listened to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, Peter, James, John, three of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, right? They're with Jesus on this mountain. Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth, not even your mama, could bleach them. The the mama part is a textual dispute, but the bleach part is actually there. Peter was an eyewitness of this. He was an ear witness of this. He heard the voice of God speaking to Jesus. He saw the transfiguration. And there's something about this encounter on this mountain and the transfiguration of Jesus that he saw that made Peter all the more sure of Jesus' return. And it makes those who read of it share in that surety. So this is the purpose of the recording of the transfiguration on that mountain in part. Pastor Sam Storms calls it a preview of coming attractions. He writes about it like this. He says, the transfiguration provides for us a brief momentary glimpse at the glory of Jesus Christ that will be revealed when he returns. The transfiguration of Jesus is a sneak peek, as it were, not only of the true nature of Christ as Son of God, but also of that majesty and power and glory that will be fully revealed for all to see on the day when he comes back for his bride, the church. This, then, is an advanced glance into the future, he says. It's a momentary but very real manifestation of the glory and splendor and majesty and power that will envelop and surround and characterize Jesus when he comes back. So Peter and James and John, their experience of Jesus' transfiguration on that mountain where his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light serves as a preview of the glory of Jesus that will be seen at his return. Sam Storms continues, he says, what Peter, James, and John were privileged to see was the eternal pre-incarnate glory of the sun that for the period of his earthly life had been deliberately obscured and hidden behind the veil of his human flesh. The veil of infinite, a finite human nature is momentarily lifted to provide a glimpse of his infinite deity. So think about this. Okay? About how awesome this experience must have been for Peter. 
he's writing about 30 years after the transfiguration. So 30 years have passed since this mountaintop experience. Um, And this revelation of the majesty of Christ fills the mind of Peter with such awe that he wants more than anything to share the certainty and hope of that encounter with his readers before he dies. You remember from last week, he knows he's about to die and he's penning these words. There's a similar description to what Peter saw on the mountain from the apostle John's vision that he had of Jesus in his glory in Revelation chapter one. I'd like you to just listen to it as I read it and kind of marvel at what John is describing, at who John is describing. Okay? It goes like this, Revelation chapter one. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is in exile for preaching the word of God um, on this island called Patmos. He has this vision. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first And the last and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John was granted a preview of what we will see when Jesus comes back. As as did Peter. The difference is that Peter's was an actual transfiguration of Jesus, not merely a vision. Peter actually saw Jesus in his glory that anticipates his return. As Professor Dale Bruner puts it, it was like he saw Jesus inside out. In verse 19, Peter continues, he says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter says this this account of the transfiguration of Jesus that he saw with his own eyes on that mountain confirms the prophet's predictions that he will come one day in glory. So he says, pay attention. Pay attention to this teaching. Um, It's the language that he's using here is the language of watchfulness and of devotion And even one place it's used to describe addiction. It's that strong an attention pain. 
pay serious, constant attention to this teaching about Jesus' return, he's saying. Now, how often do you reflect on the return of Christ? How does it affect you day by day? Does it? It's interesting that the scriptures often, when they write about the return of Jesus, they write about eager waiting. Even longing is the language that's used sometimes. Look at, here's Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, he says something similar. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies that happens at the return of Christ. But if you're like me, Unless I have intentional, um, thoughtful reflection on my part, the return of Jesus will slip way off my radar. I mean, it just doesn't even cross my mind unless I'm intentional about it. And Peter cautions us not to let that happen. Pay attention to this teaching. As we live in a culture that would think we are beyond silly to believe in such a doctrine, he urges us to pay serious attention to the teaching about Jesus' return. And the thing that helps me most is simply praying the Lord's Prayer. Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stop right there. There's that one little phrase, right? Thy kingdom come. Praying for the kingdom to come has lots of facets to it, but... One central one is that when you pray for a kingdom to come, you're praying for a king to come, right? So you can, you can use that little phrase to express your desire for the coming of Christ. Now, I hope you use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for your praying. Um, and even, even pray it verbatim, word for word, thoughtfully on a daily basis, um, I, I try to pray it every day, sometimes multiple times a day. This little phrase, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, helps me turn my heart and mind and faith towards the return of Christ one day. Now, when I first became a Christian, I was a junior in high school, and I like became a Christian. Man, I had the Jesus is Lord chrome bumper sticker on my trumpet case, I had, I, had, I had this belt buckle. I'm serious. I had me a Maranatha belt buckle. Um, Maranatha, I've, I've shared this with you before. It's a simple prayer that Paul prayed at the close of his first letter to the church of Corinth. And it's translated sometimes. Sometimes it comes into our Bibles as Maranatha, some translations. Some, some change it to our English equivalent, come, Lord. Come, Lord. That's, that's what it means. And the New Testament ends with that prayer. Look, the very end of the New Testament. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? You can add that little prayer, Maranatha prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, to, to your life as well. Or you can buy the shirt or the hat or you can get the peanut butter. Okay? And then whenever you make a PBJ, you're just praying, come Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> whatever, 
whatever it, ta whatever it takes, right? Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Pay attention to the prophetic teaching concerning Christ's return. Like a lamp shining in a dark place, as a teaching that illumines our thinking in a culture that's gone dark by denial of this hope-filled truth, right? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter's using prophetic language here to point to the time when Jesus returns. Elsewhere, Jesus is called the bright morning star. We are to faithfully pay attention, be devoted, and watchful to the teaching that Jesus will return until he returns. Okay? Until he comes back. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So his focus gets a little bigger here and he's talking about all of, all of the prophecies of scripture. He's thinking about the Old Testament primarily here when he wrote but it has broad application to all of scripture. And Peter's saying, we simply cannot make scripture say whatever we want it to. This is what those false teachers were doing, it, it seems. Stay tuned next week, that's chapter two. It's given over to addressing these false teachers. He says they're, you know, they're right and wrong interpretations of the Bible. Peter's pressing us to make sure that our interpretations and those of our teachers are apostolic. They match the teaching of the apostles. So we want to beware of novel new theologies. Um, it's not like that we can never have an original theological idea, but it should make you really nervous, not excited, if you do, right? Because it's not... You know, in 2,000 years, there's a good chance that somebody's discovered the truth already. And if you're the one that comes up with a new insight, it might just be your own interpretation. And he said that's not the way it's supposed to work. Peter says both the origin and the right understanding of Scripture are given to us by God. Men spoke from God, he says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's this divine and human work. The Bible you hold in your hands or is on your phone. It's divine and human, given by God, but bearing the words and language and style of the human authors. They're guided by the Holy Spirit in what they wrote. And that spirit guidance implies the protection of God's words. He's not going to carry the authors along to anything other than the words of God because the Holy Spirit is God. And Peter is experiencing this personally as he writes this letter. Okay? He is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. He knows what he's writing about. So, the Bible on your phone. Peter says, that's from God. 
the Holy Spirit himself guided the authors to make it so. And when somebody teaches you something that says that the return of Christ is a myth, believe this teaching. Don't believe that teaching, right? Trust these words as from God himself. You should read it as though it's from God himself. It's worth it, right? He's telling us it's worth it to invest in this book. Let me, let me close um, with this encouragement from Pastor Sam Storms again. It's a little long, so I put it on the screen so you can track with me. He says, so why was Jesus transfigured on that mountain? Why did he ask Peter, James, and John to bear witness to this event? Simply in order that they might in turn tell us of the absolutely inviolable certainty of the second coming of Christ in glory. At his first coming, his glory was veiled. He came in weakness and humility and was subject to scorn and rejection and eventually crucifixion, but not the second coming. Don't be discouraged by the corruption in our world. Don't ever think that pagan society and sexual immorality and atheistic arrogance and poverty will have the final word. Don't put your trust in a political party or person with the idea that he, she, or it will make all things right. A day is coming, says Peter, and we have seen the preview. We have witnessed with our own eyes in advance what that day will be like, and I assure you, says Peter, that when it comes, it will not be with a white flag declaring a truce, but with a sharp two-edged sword to destroy his enemies. When he comes a second time, it will not be with overtures of peace and reconciliation to those who have rejected him and mocked his name, but in flaming fire, dealing out eternal retribution. When he comes a second time, it will not be with the fanfare of new hope for mankind, but in righteousness displayed for his people, for believers, and wrath for those who do not bow the knee in submission to his lordship. When he comes a second time, it will not be to discuss or debate concerning what is right and wrong. He is coming to judge and eradicate evil from the new earth on which he will, he and we will dwell forever. That, he says, dear friend, is what the transfiguration is all about. It is, to use the words of the film industry, a preview of coming attractions. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. So, Lord, Lord Jesus, we, we say come. Increase our love for you so that we can say with vigor and gladness, without hesitation, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come for us to take us where you are. And Lord, help us as we lose that teaching to apathy or even to those who would tell us that it's a myth. Help us, Lord. Help us trust your word to be that for us, your word. So, Father, have your way with our thoughts and our beliefs and the actions that flow from it, we pray in Christ's great name. Amen.